And so that's something I've learned and, you know, some advice that I would give to, to really embrace what they're good at, be proud of it, and, and put it as the selling point of your startup rather than trying to pretend to be something else. All right, everybody, welcome back to Founder Vision. I'm your host, Brett Kistler. Today, I'm speaking with Emmanuel Elmagian. He's the founder and CEO of Spinzo. How are you doing today, Emmanuel? I'm doing great. Thanks, Brent. Uh, thanks for having me. Excited to chat with you. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for joining us. Where are you located right now? I'm in St. John, New Brunswick, Canada. It's on the east coast of Canada. Ah, interesting. So just adjacent to Maine uh, in the US, yeah. Yeah, wonderful. Um, I'm recording here in Hawaii. And this might be one of my last recordings in Hawaii before I move back to the Bay. Oh, oh, very well. I guess we're pretty close to the other side of the world then. Yeah. Yeah. As far as we can be for technically being North America. Yeah, true. So Emmanuel, tell me a little bit about Spinzo and just give me like a 30 second pitch for what it is that you guys do over there. Sure. Yeah. So Spinzo is a promotional ticketing platform. Uh, We work with... uh, a lot of the big sports teams that you'd know and love, like in the NHL, NBA, NFL, we power their group and promotional ticket sales. And what that means is if a company wants to attend the game with special perks, they would usually use our system to run that promotion. Or if a school uh, wants to join or a nonprofit or Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, we usually power those promotions because they have a lot of special little uh, features with regard to fan incentives. Maybe you get your photo on the court if you're a certain mm-hmm. size that sort of thing. We're usually about, uh, I would say, between 5 to 15% of tickets that you'd see at a game uh, are processed by Spinzo for our clients. Okay. How long have you been around? Spinzo's been around for 10 years. Uh, We've been doing the sports side of things for around six. Okay. Uh, So a bit of a mixed answer there. Great. So, So you guys had a little bit of traction and were relatively established prior to the end of events uh, situation that we had with COVID for a while. Yeah, that's right. I would say, you know, our, our best days were right before the uh, COVID time. Yeah. And uh, it was, uh, it was, you know, a great, uh, a great time for us and, and the industry. Uh, but ultimately, uh, COVID hit and uh, we had to deal with it uh, pretty fast, really, at the hours uh, that, that followed to March 12th, when everything uh, got canceled. We had to deal with, you know, refunding mm-hmm. uh, buyers uh, when when teams wanted to do that, informing buyers that their money would be on a credit. Uh, just a lot of communication all around. But yeah, I mean, our our best month was was right before COVID, so things had been you know going on an upward trajectory for us. But uh, COVID was a good tester of our business model, and uh, we we've survived. Yeah. What what do you attribute to your survival the most? I imagine one thing that would come up out of this is the customer service fiasco that would be refunding everyone's yes. tickets and everyone wanting it, needing it at the same time and feeling like there's a slow response. How did you keep up with that while also having this yeah. massive decrease in revenue? Yeah, I would say that uh, Spinzo as a company is obsessed with customer service. And so, you know, when things were going down on that March 11, March 12th in the evenings there and everything was being canceled, uh, we right away sprung into action and built uh, a new system essentially to 
message to our clients or to our clients' buyers, I should say. So buyers of sports tickets in terms of what the status was with their team. So the problem in those early days was no one knew what was going on. Were they going to be refunded? Was it a credit? Were the games even going to happen? Was it a one-week stoppage? So every team had a different approach to dealing with it. Mm. And so we built a system where whereby teams could basically indicate on the Spinzo system what their approach was, how it affected certain games. And we were able to telegraph that to buyers. So every single Spinzo-powered page at that time went live and it had all that information. Hmm. So buyers were very clear to know uh, what was going on. So that's that's fascinating. So your the initial response that you had to, to COVID and a massive revenue reduction was to spin up an engineering project with yes. a tight deadline and a number of different unforeseen use cases to serve a client base that was making decisions on the fly and very different from one another. Yep. 24 yeah. to 48 hours, the feature was spun up. Uh, it, it really was necessary. I mean, if we look at our competitors, I mean, one of our competitors went out of business. Um, it, it just didn't work out the same for, for everyone else. And a lot of it came down to communication. Mm. Uh, so we were able to communicate that way. And and that module was changing constantly. I mean, sports teams were using it to communicate with their fans. And uh, it, it was great. I'm glad we did it. I mm-hmm. mean, it was time well spent uh, because it saved us a lot of time thereafter. Um, and then with regard to refunds, typically refunds are one-offs. You know, you would just take them as they come, be rare in the ticketing world that you would offer refunds. Uh, but in this case, you know, you could have thousands of refunds to do at once. So we built systems to queue up the refunds and do them autom- automatically. And, you know, we had no issues with clients, really. We didn't delay any refunds. Uh, so really, I would attribute our success throughout COVID to uh, you know, top-notch service. We're obsessed by it. I'm obsessed with it. And uh, it got us through. Mm-hmm. So so tell me about the, tell me a little bit more about the upswing now and... Uh, how are you, how are you carrying those those lessons forward as you are also kind of returning returning more towards business in the direction of usual? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say I mean uh, top notch service is key to continue throughout this time. We've noticed in, just in the last few weeks as there's been an uptick in, in COVID cases, uh, a lot of sports teams and venues are starting to implement more protocols. So some teams, for example, in the NHL and NBA. Uh, as we lead into the start of their seasons, are now going to require either vaccination or a negative COVID test. Uh, you know, some teams may mm. potentially only require a vaccination. Uh, so there's different rules there, and so a lot of it comes down to communicating with fans. And so we're um, pretty focused on that, on allowing that type of communication throughout our offers. In terms of the upswing, I would say that the best category is really concerts. Uh, that has sprung back the fastest. I would say live sporting events uh, has seen soft demand um, Mm. that maybe some people didn't expect to be so soft. Uh, We expected it to not be a uh, 100% back to normal with regard to sports ticketing demand this fall. And I think that's what's playing out. It's a lot harder to sell tickets at the actual price that it used to be before COVID. So uh, there's a few more empty seats, and I think teams are going to have to uh, figure out through early analytics here what is that price point 
to bring everyone back mm-hmm. comfortably. So your so your business is dealing directly with like sports teams, venues, concert organizers, and I imagine that must be a fairly long sales cycle. Uh, you know, to to be courting you know an NHL team, and how how mm-hmm. do you experience how, how does that sales process go for you? Yeah, well, I would say it's a, it's a long sales cycle, but definitely way shorter than it was. Uh, for the early days of Spinzo, which is prior to us entering the sports and ticketing industry, when we were working with large retailers instead. Mm. And you want to talk about a long sales cycle. I mean, just, uh, you know, talk to Home Depot, for example. Uh, mm. These uh, these companies uh, are months and months long of uh, negotiating, uh, you know, a lot of paperwork to move around, uh, systems to integrate. I mean, a sales cycle for for working with a retailer like that on some kind of point of sale integration could be a year or two or longer. And so part of the reason why we actually entered the sports and ticketing space is to lessen that uh, sales cycle. And what we saw is sports teams that have latent demand, empty seats, and the the cost to filling those seats is zero, right? It's just oxygen in a room. Mm. And so when you approach a sports team with a compelling solution, that could reduce their empty seats from 2,000, let's say in a 20,000 person venue, from 2,000 to 1,000, that's very compelling and something that a sports team uh, would jump to uh, right away. So the sales cycle for us in a sports team is likely a few months, usually a few months. I mean, sometimes you're courting them for, for a year or longer. Uh, but in some cases, I wouldn't say it's an emergency, but if a sports team really needed to to fill some empty seats, uh, we can usually spin things up here in a few weeks. Mm. Uh, so it usually starts with us working with either the chief revenue officer or the senior vice president of ticketing and you know, showing off the system, uh, what it can do for them and their groups. And uh, from there, we usually win the venue client. We usually start on the sports side side of things, and then we'd usually win the venue client as well to do family shows, boxing, concerts, and this sort of thing. Mm. So how does how does competition affected the business? As I imagine, as you go to begin the sales cycle with a sports team, they've probably got a number of people who are like, "Hey, you got extra tickets? We'll sell them for you." And you know, there's like, <laughs> yeah. they they could say yes to a number of them, and then there's the coordination problem, and there's like mm-hmm. you know probably some inefficiencies there, or they could pick one one established company and sign with them, and then like how how does that work for you? Where where do you guys fit in in that yeah. space? Yeah, I mean, the ticketing ecosystem is quite complex, but most people would look to the secondary market of brokers to be a great place to unload uh, tickets that are unsold. So think of companies like StubHub uh, or SeatGeek. Uh, so these brokers would take unfilled seats maybe a week before the game. They would uh, pay a very low price for them, and then they would resell them themselves. We don't directly compete with those companies, with brokers, because essentially we're a tool to let the sports team or property sell the tickets themselves, mm. but with some kind of uh, unique twists uh, on the sale process, like adding these fan ex- uh, incentives and whatnot. So in that case, uh, the team has more control. They have more control over pricing. They have more control over brand. So Spinzo is a white labeled platform. So when our sports teams use us, it really is their branding. So it's more of a take back control of your tickets kind of affair that we're running here. But we don't compete with the brokers. We're just another avenue to do it. There are other companies that pop up now and then to um, to compete with us. 
in offering kind of a white label system for sports teams. But I think we're quite nestled into our position and that we've we've focused the last six years on sports ticketing. So our feature base is quite extensive. Mm -hmm. So tell me tell me about your journey into founding Spinzo. How did you get into this position? Yeah. Well, after finishing my engineering degree, I, I studied systems design engineering, which is kind of kind of a mix of, let's say, electrical and computer science in a way. Studied that in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. Uh, I went to work for McKinsey and Company, based in New York. And it was right at the start of the 2008 recession, uh, so we were doing a lot of banking clients, insurance clients, mutual fund clients mm-hmm. that were heavily impacted. So, so I guess I started my career in uh, management consulting. Uh, more of the high tech side and the IT side of things. Uh, and after about two years of that, I decided it was time for a change. Uh, I always wanted more control in my life, um, more flexibility. And uh, my parents are entrepreneurs and uh, I, I saw what it's like and it's not easy, uh, but it's trade-offs. It's all about trade-offs. And I decided to uh, cash in my management consulting position uh, to found Spinzo. And uh, left New York, uh, came back to Canada um, went through all the typical processes to uh, to raise a bit of capital and and started how did you identify the opportunity and what made you what made you feel like how how did you cross from having having ha- had this thought that this might be a good idea to i'm going to cash in my chips and make this happen mm-hmm. well uh at the time uh there was a groupon uh, which uh, you and your listeners would be familiar with as a brand uh, was really taking off, I would say, around 2008, 2009 into 2010. And while the concept is great to unload excess inventory uh, at a significant discount, I wanted some kind of middle approach, maybe for larger uh, companies that they wouldn't do Groupon, let's say like the large and well-known brands. And so the concept of Spinzo in the early days uh, was to be a pricing platform for those large retailers to unload inventory, but in a more predictable fashion. So we invented this system, which we coined the term crowd pricing for, where the more people who want to buy a product, uh, the lower the price for that product. So for example, if Home Depot had a bunch of snowblowers to get rid of, uh, let's say, and uh, the Northern US, they thought it'd be a snowy winter. It wasn't. They now need to unload them. So with Spinzo's crowd pricing technology, they could in a way where they say, if we get 10 commitments on these in one city, this is the price. If we get 20 of them sold, it's a lower price. 30 is even better. 50 is even better. So buyers basically commit to buy these. We take their credit card, but we don't charge them yet. And we charge them at the end of the promotion period for the final price, depending on how many people bought in. Wow, interesting. It gives this great incentive for uh, buyers to spread the word. You'll tell your neighbor, hey, you were looking at getting a snowblower. You should join in on this because... Every time someone joins in, the price goes down for everyone, which kind of was the initial concept of Groupon, though Groupon was more of their own brand. And and we needed something that was more either a mixed brand or fully white labeled, right? Mm-hmm. So that companies, you know, like Home Depot or the old Sears, who we incidentally spoke with uh, prior to, to their demise, um, they would be interested in because it would be under their own branding. I also imagine perhaps they're getting more money from their sales via you because Groupon takes a really big haircut. Yeah. And we would not uh, take such a big uh, uh, cut because we wouldn't be the ones promoting it. Right. Essentially they, they would promote it through their own channels 
And instead, we would be more of the technology. Yeah, you're the platform provider. Yeah, we're the platform. So, so that's how we started. And essentially, we we learned over time as we did more like small businesses. We did you know some little restaurant chains. We started doing things like zoos, amusement parks. Uh, we were focused heavily on the Toronto area at the time. And we learned that those service industries worked better where, I wouldn't say service industries, businesses where there's no product to sell, that it was a service like a ticket uh, because of that latent demand. And from there, we learned that this would be best used for sports teams. And, uh, and that's how we decided to, uh, mm-hmm. to pivot uh, into that and to dump that long sales cycle that you brought up earlier. Uh, so once we moved more towards sports ticketing, that yeah. sales cycle really uh, declined. Yeah, it really seems also that sports ticketing works really well for the, for the crowdsourcing model or crowd sales model because it's easy to find friends that want to go to the game with you. It might be harder to find friends who want to buy a pressure washer with you. Or a lawnmower. That's true. <laughs> that's true. So one one thing that's interesting about this is that you have people who are committing to buy a buy a thing when the price is still higher than it's going to be, and then so it, it seems like there'd be sort of a curve where you'd start out with a lot yeah. of friction because people are the, the first adopters yeah. are willing to pay the most, and then as more add-ons come more sales come, then the mm-hmm. price starts to come down and then it would sort of accelerate towards the end until eventually it's like close to sold out and people are rushing to get in. Yeah, that's right. How, how do you address that initial friction in getting those? Yeah, so yeah, you're digging right into the crowd pricing model here. And the way we did that was to allow buyers to actually bid a lower price. Hmm. Uh, so what happens is at that early stage when the price is high, let's say of that snowblower, it's, maybe it's $800 and you... You know, you'd really join in if it's six fifty or less. So what you could do is uh, bid. I'll I'll buy it if it hits six fifty or less. Mm-hmm. And so the platform would do the math, that magic math, to figure out when there's enough people that say they want it for six fifty, and some say they want it for seven hundred and six twenty five. It will uh, put put the price accordingly based mm-hmm. on the price curve set by uh, by the retail retailer. In this example, so allowing the buyer to bid would remove that friction because they'd say, okay, the price is a little high now, but I'll, I'll join it if it's 650 or less. But again, they could be getting it for 590 mm-hmm. or 580 if even more people opted in. And at a point, the bidding options really go away because as you mentioned, there is a curve and that curve starts to flatten over time. You can't have the, the decrease be the same. Like what if a thousand people want to stay right. lower, right? It's not going to go down to zero. Uh, so that curve would, would slowly flatten out. And at that point, it simply becomes, look, every new person that joins is now dropping it by, you know, could be $5 each person. Then it goes down to $3, $2, and that curve slowly flattens out. And our platform handled all that. Mm-hmm. So in this in this sales cycle, let's say, let's say you're selling to a sports team and you had said previously that, you know, basically selling tickets is just empty air in a seat versus a button, a seat, and it doesn't cost them anything. But then you also mentioned that one of the value adds that Spinzo does is that you can kind of add, you can add something to the experience for these particular, this particular tranche of tickets. So how in your, in your sales process with a sports team, how do you kind of, how do you explore that with them and have them become excited about what might be an additional effort on their side to sell these tickets and delivery at the, at the stadium? Well, what's interesting is that if you look at Spinzo holistically, all we're really doing is automating 
some of the great creative ideas that people in the sports ticketing industry have had over the years. And I'm not saying this is a concept that's been around for decades, but it, it appears that maybe seven to 10 years ago, sports teams started to experiment with these kinds of things where they would say, hey, if, if your choir is able to sell 200 tickets to friends and family, your choir will sing the national anthem instead mm-hmm. of a person. Right. Well, or that's how my choir your got school, in on that. I see. <laughs> you're, you're, now you know. <laughs> uh, so if you're potentially, if your school got 150 tickets sold, maybe a player will come visit you at school, like during mm-hmm. an assembly or something, and they'd have an event. Right. Uh, so things like that. So that would be one example. Another example is if you have a youth sports team, maybe they want to raise money to go on a tournament that's out of town. So the sports team would be more than willing to give maybe $3 a ticket, $5 a ticket as a donation back to your volleyball team, for example. Mm-hmm. So that volleyball team could help sell tickets in the community by, by means of social media, for instance. Maybe they get three, 400 tickets sold. Where, well, they've now raised over $1,000 for their volleyball trip if you're raising $3 a ticket. So these are concepts that started to come into the ticketing world with no automation. So they would calculate these things by hand. So let's go back to the choir example. Choir director would phone into the sports team every couple of days, say, how many tickets are we at? Are people phoning in wanting to buy these seats? People would have to phone in to purchase seats because they'd have to be tracked as part of the choir, first of all. And then the sports team would have to keep tallying the totals and then tell the director what the totals is and that the director would have to go back to, you know, his or her audience and say, Hey, we're at, we're at 150, but we need to hit 200 to sing the national anthem. So, keep sharing it, right? This is this was a poor approach because it was not automated. No one could see anything. And so Spinzo's now automated that complete process. And in doing so has enabled other potential features, you know, where you could do kind of a flash sale and say, the first 20 people that buy from this school offer get their photo on the field uh, pregame at an NFL game, for instance. So you start to add all these incentives and it and it gets really fun. The other thing you could do is um, have competitions on the Spinzo platform. So different schools can compete with each other. And you could say the top selling school gets their photo on the ice post game for an NHL game, for instance. And you could see live how your school is doing on a leaderboard. And so all the parents want to you know, share with their colleagues so that their son or daughter gets their photo on the ice uh, post game. Hmm. So these are the kinds of things that we've automated and incentives and it's been very fortuitous that we've done it now because there's a trend now toward these experiences and away from the generic ticket to watch the game. Right. And COVID has, has made us all learn that lesson during COVID, you know, people stayed home. They had to, they got better TVs to watch mm-hmm. their games on. They got comfortable with the at home viewing experience. So if you want to bring these fans back to the venue, you're going to have to offer them something more than a game to watch, right? You're going to have to offer them an experience that they can't get anywhere else or an Instagrammable moment. You need to offer them that. Yeah. And that's the trend uh, that we're helping to cultivate. And, and that's the trend that's occurring. And uh, if you're not on that bandwagon, it's, it's not going to work. And, you know, we see some sports teams, you know, reluctantly adopt these practices. Well, you know, they're the last ones to fill their seats. Hmm. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. So Emmanuel, I want to, I like to close my episodes with 
something more something more personal. I w- I'm curious, what is something that you've learned through this entire process about yourself that ch- transformed the way that you do business and also who you are as a person? Mm-hmm. It's a very uh, tough question, but uh, I would say, I mean, it's it's cliche, but as as people say, you you have to really understand what you're good at. I think a lot of founders, you know, want to create a startup, and you know, they go right toward, well, I got to get good at fundraising, and uh, I got to get good at schmoozing with potential investors and possible technical co-founders. But really, you you have to look at what what you're good at. And for me, I'm good at technology. I'm good at building. Right? I I build software. That's what I do. And so that really is the linch point for what makes Spinzo successful. I mean, we've now built a, a great team around it, but but for me, it's the, the learning I had was to, to figure out what I'm good at. And I'm good at programming, and that will be the differentiator uh, for Spinzo. And uh, it's something I've learned to uh, to really embrace. And I would say in the early days of Spinzo, it's something that I didn't embrace. Mm. You know, I kind of hid the fact that I that I was kind of the key builder uh, of Spinzo. It was always uh, in vogue to say, "Oh, we've got a huge team of engineers, you know, building that." Uh, but I'm not afraid to say anymore that uh, you know I'm the chief builder of Spinzo, and I'm proud of it. And so that's something I've learned, and you know, some advice that I would give to younger entrepreneurs or, or entrepreneurs who are just starting now, no matter their age. Uh, to really embrace what they're good at, be proud of it, and and put it as the selling point uh, of your startup rather than trying to pretend to be something else. Hmm. So, so what you're saying then is when you when COVID hit and you did that entire like overnight write of this updated system to solve all these like COVID related issues that were propping up ah, issues that were cropping up, you were the lead architect of that, and you were actually coding that. Yes, I was, you know, overnight uh, making sure that, that it would work. And, you know, that's what Spinzo's good at. That's what I'm good mm-hmm. at. And I'm not going to shy away from that, right? I think it's uh, it's vital to have technical skills and it's something that we're good at. It's not mm-hmm. to say that every founder needs to have the technical skills. It doesn't have to be that way. Right. Uh, but it's nice when you do and, uh, and we embrace it. What does your engineering team look like at Spinzo? Is it just you and maybe a couple other engineers or have you built out a team and you're still still deep in the code there's only a couple other people and uh, one of our investors is um, i guess you'd call a staff augmentation company hmm. uh, that has a lot of technical resources and we're able to draw on them uh, when necessary so this more of a flexible model works works well for us yeah that's actually what we do too staff augmentation and mm-hmm. other forms of yeah. contract engineering yeah well thank you so much emmanuel i really enjoyed this conversation and i really appreciate you joining us yeah likewise thank you brett